the murder of George Floyd was such a horrific thing. And it was a turning point for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who had either willfully turned a blind eye or had never had to reckon with or consider the profound racism upon which the United States was founded and continues to operate. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Okay, hello everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest uh, who will introduce herself. Uh, Asa, please go ahead. Hi, everyone. My name is Asa Cohen. I am a documentary filmmaker currently pursuing my MFA or a Master of Fine Arts in Documentary Film and Video at Stanford University. I would say... The way that I like to introduce my filmmaking is by saying that I came to film very much from a storytelling perspective and from a people-centric perspective. I was never a kid or even a teenager or college student who was a cinephile or loved watching classic films or was really interested in cinematography or lighting, although those things are really exciting and interesting to me now that I am in a more technical um, school uh, than I was for undergrad or my history studies. But what really drew me to filmmaking was actually my experience working at a nonprofit. Between high school and college, I took a year off or a gap year as Americans and some Europeans like to call it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was organized by Princeton University, which was where I went to undergrad, um, where I went to college. And it was an opportunity to work for a year at a nonprofit, not for academic credit or for really anything other than learning about service in a very you know, hands-on way by working with an, an NGO or some sort of community-based organization in one of uh, four developing countries. And so I went to India and I was based in the city of Varanasi, which is a really incredible, magical, complicated place. Um, it's a very religious place. It's a very holy place. It's also has very high rates of poverty and violence against women and pollution and environmental issues and issues of historical preservation. And so it's a really fascinating place. And I was working at an organization called Guria Swayam Sevisanstan, or Guria for short, which is an NGO dedicated to fighting human trafficking in India and sort of worldwide, um, but focused in India, really in, in North India where they're based. 
And so it was the first time really that I'd had a hands-on experience working in an NGO, being full-time and the work that they did was really, really inspiring. And I felt like every day I would wake up and I would see people change lives on a really individual basis. And so, and so when I was working there, I felt like all of these amazing stories were being sort of told on an everyday basis. And so these stories were being told on an everyday basis, really to me and to the people there about what was happening to women and what was happening to children and all sorts of people. Um, and I felt like I wanted to tell these stories. And when I would talk about it, it felt like it wasn't enough to talk about it. And I would write about it and it felt like it wasn't enough to write about it. And I would take pictures and it felt like that wasn't enough either. And I really want to preface this by saying I believe very profoundly in the written word and in photography and in sort of other forms of advocacy. But I felt like, gosh, I just want to make a film. And I had no experience at all. Um, and so a friend and I, we literally applied for a filmmaking grant without any film experience. And by, you know, the grace of God or perhaps a mistake, um, we were given this grant. And so we went and over a couple of summers ended up making a, a documentary film about the organization. And honestly, I mean, I submitted the film to a lot of film festivals. I didn't get into any single film festival with this film, but it sort of didn't matter to me because at the end of the day, what we did with the film is raised over a million rupees for legal aid for trafficking survivors. And we used it to raise awareness and we used it to sort of complicate existing narratives about what trafficking looks like and how it happens and sort of where it happens and what can be done about it. And that was how I got into filmmaking really was being interested in stories and wanting to tell sort of nonfiction, human, true stories, which at the end of the day, I think are always incredibly universal. So I hope that's an introduction that makes sense. Yeah, no. And, and you you studied at that time history, or was that when you studied um, uh, culture and and colonialism? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So that film I made when I was an undergraduate, and I was studying history because okay. I'm a history nerd. And I also a lot of people ask me like, why would you study history if you wanted to be a filmmaker? And I think that you know this. I think may resonate with you as an anthropologist, like story narrative structure is sort of universal across disciplines. And I would say in the discipline of history, learning how to intake lots of information, often conflicting anecdotes, fact-checking, figuring out what sources make sense. All of that was incredibly, I, I would never trade my liberal arts education because I think it taught me how to be a critical thinker, but also, within the context of narrative, of making films that have some sort of narrative structure, I think studying history really opened my eyes to how to get people to care about things that may they may not have personally witnessed or may not have personally experienced, right? Because that's what history really is. And I also think in my 
career, I really hope, even though a lot of nonfiction filmmaking focuses on the present or sort of issues of the present, it always ties back to something in the past. And so having that kind of training and academic discipline to understand how to provide context or do the research to really understand the type of story you're trying to tell is invaluable. So I, I I would like to to bring you then to the to your next university because you you did not uh, do your masters or your first masters in in the U.S. but you went to Ireland, right? So I how, did. How why did that happen? Yeah, great question. So my first exposure to Ireland as an island, I suppose was in high school. Um, when I was 15, I participated in a student exchange through the Rotary Club, um, through Rotary International, that brings students from the Chicago area and students from Belfast, Northern Ireland together. And so we went to Belfast for, um, I think 10 days, my sophomore year of high school, And we learned all about conflict resolution. And then the students from Belfast would come here or would would come to the States and also learn about conflict resolution from the lens of um, sort of how it's dealt with in Chicago in particular with gang violence and also through religious groups and things like that. And so when we were in Belfast, we learned about the troubles, we learned about the violence and the segregation and the peace process. And I remember my mind was positively blown I had never really heard of the troubles. And I think most Americans interaction with it was through perhaps knowing about President Clinton's involvement. Um, But most Americans think of Ireland as like a fun vacation spot um, or they think of St. Patrick's Day or have these sort of stereotypes. And I thought, oh my God, this is such an inspiring, incredible thing that happened. And of course, the peace process there was not perfect. Of course, there's still a lot of work to do between the communities, the Catholic and Protestant or, you know, unionist and Republican um, communities in Northern Ireland and and on the island more generally. Um, But I thought, wow, this is an example of unbelievable conflict resolution. And in a way, now that I this would be a retroactive interpretation, but in a way it it also really comes down to storytelling. It comes down to people trying to listen to each other, even when it's really hard. And even when there is incredible violence that has happened, incredible violence at stake. And so the whole experience was profoundly moving to me as as a teenager. And I always thought, I really want to study this more. I want to go back to Ireland. And so when I was an undergrad and I studied history, I studied the British empire and I studied the fallout of the British empire, which touched Ireland, it touched India, it had touched these two places that I had a personal connection to, but it touched really the whole world, um, arguably, I would say. Um, and if not the British empire, of course, so many, so much of world history can be interpreted by understanding the ways in which certain countries, dynasties, governments have colonized uh, 
other parts of the world, you know? I mean, we think of it really in a modern context as like Britain, but if you think about China, Japan, the Ottoman Empire, the Mughal Empire, I mean, there's the Aztecs, like there's so much really throughout world history, um, the Crusades, right? If you really go back far. Um, so anyway, to me, that was a historical lens that actually helped me understand many of the modern political conflicts that ail us in the world. And so it made sense. It makes sense to me, even though to a lot of people, it's like a strange academic combination to mm -hmm. work in filmmaking, but have this training in history and have this particular training in the historical lens of sort of colonial studies or post-colonial studies. Um, but to me, it really is about investigating the, the root causes of why people can't listen to each other. Mm. Um, and being sensitive to the ways in which all of us are shaped by the world that we're born into. So it makes sense to me and I'm trying to articulate it. I hope mm -hmm. it's making sense to no, you. No, no, it, 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 <laughs> it does, it does. I think while you were studying there, you also made this multimedia, did this multimedia project mm -hmm. on, the, on the Brexit, right? Tell how did you get involved with that? And because it's pretty interesting and, and um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking about that. It was a really, I was so lucky. I had an incredible advisor at the National University of Ireland, Galway, where I was studying. Um, her name is Dr. Suman Koo. And um, she, by training, is, is a very interdisciplinary scholar, but was uh, trained in, in sociology and political science. And so I approached her because Brexit had happened in June 2016, and I started in Ireland in August of 2016. And so Brexit had just happened. It was really quite tense and quite confusing as to what so you're referring happen. now to the vote, to the vote that happened because yeah, it took yeah. a long time. To I know, actual... yeah. So great. That's a great <laughs> yeah. um, um, point I should make. So in June 2016, yeah. the vote happened. And for, you know, for the duration of the time I was in Ireland and I was studying mm -hmm. Brexit and I was interviewing people about it, there had been no resolution as of yet. So there were questions about whether the border was going to be remilitarized whether, you know, from sort of large questions about the border to very mundane questions about tariffs and taxes and can people drive over the border now with, a, with their driver's license or do you need a passport? Or, you know, if you want to buy a laptop in Dublin and bring it to Belfast, I mean, just all these, the really, the mundanity um, and then also the extremity of, what Brexit meant for everyday people. And Galway, the city where I was, is not close to the border in particular, um, but it's in the west of Ireland, which is generally seen as perhaps more nationalistic. People speak Irish in the west. Um, and I, it's a, a dual language um, university that I was attending. So, so, you know, people were speaking Irish and studying Irish and that doesn't always correlate to political views, but it often does. And so um, it was a really interesting time also just to be a young person and be, you know, 
in, in my opinion, as I was very disillusioned with the Brexit vote and feeling like Britain broadly is a very multicultural place um, in part sort of voluntarily and in part because of colonialism, right? And because of the British empire and how many places Britain had colonized and subsequently people had come back and, and sought out employment and education and, and lives in England. And it felt so sad to me that a lot of the Brexit rhetoric, even though in some ways, some people made it about, you know, the NHS, the National Health Service, or about taxes or about, you know, inflation. But those things for me were, were you know, in my opinion, just very coded xenophobia and very coded anti-immigrant sentiments that, you know, I felt had no place really in the, in the modern world and shouldn't have a place in the modern, modern world. And so, so Brexit was a really interesting like political moment to be in Ireland, because of course, Ireland was the only land border between the United Kingdom and Europe. And so, so much, I, I sort of thought back to my 15 year old self who'd gone to Belfast and felt so inspired by the real political effort and just the social effort of people who live there. And I felt like they had been, like that effort had really been forgotten with the Brexit vote. Uh, walk us then a little bit on, because you did a multimedia project. How did you, what yes. was your, what did you put as a goal there? What, 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 what story did you want to tell? And, and, and why did you choose for the multimedia? Uh, what a great question. I think the story, that I wanted to tell was first and foremost to complicate the narrative around Brexit. And I think there was sort of a multi-pronged narrative. One narrative was really quite fatalistic about Brexit that, oh, now this means that people are gonna pick up guns, start killing each other again in Northern Ireland, which I didn't believe um, because most of the people who live in Northern Ireland lived through the troubles and know what that was like. And nobody wants to go back to that. Um, at least nobody I know and nobody I talked to. Um, and I think another narrative around Brexit was one of erasure, of erasing the, as I mentioned, incredible political, but also social and cultural efforts that were made by average people in the North to really desegregate schools and sports teams and community centers and all of this stuff that to me, you know, as an outsider felt very inspiring and really as a model, a potential model for so many other conflict zones where people end up putting their guns down and living side by side to an extent. Um, and so multimedia to me feels very democratic in a sense. It feels like a way to tell stories that if you don't want to sit down and read, you know, my like 50 page dissertation on, mm -hmm. on Brexit, that's fine. You can watch a short three minute clip. Um, you can 
look at some of these historical documents that I scanned or look at the photos that I took and maybe get like a little bit of a sense. Hmm. So that's one thing I like about multimedia is that it um, it's friendly to different types of people, different types of readers, different types of learners, different attention spans, frankly. Um, I think multimedia storytelling services the goal of any journalist or filmmaker because it is a physical nod to the complexity of the story, right? And I'm I'm not implying that a written piece is not complex. Of course it is. A photo essay is very complex. But to me, multimedia is a way to describe something complex in a complex manner. And that is very exciting to me. And it feels perhaps like the most appropriate real frontier of storytelling in this modern age where it's easy to scroll through, you know, social media and ignore a picture of something that mm. is meant to call your attention um, or people who don't have the time or brain space or heart space to sit down and read something that's quite emotional mm. or long or quite academic. Um, so that's why multimedia makes sense to me personally. Mm -hmm. I think it's very exciting. Um, to consider the ways in which it can help tell a complex story in an even more complex manner. Hey, the question that I wanted to ask, and, I, and I'm asking it now because I, yeah, I was just thinking about what is it with you and borders? <laughs> Great question. I, I think, you know, I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago. I never grew up near a national border or an international border or a religious border or racial border. But, but in a way, I mean, Chicago is an incredibly segregated city, segregated racially, um, segregated economically. So I think I was always aware of that. But I think when we talk about borders, you know, I've studied and been interested in very physical national borders that divide countries. But I also think there's so many borders around us all the time. Um, you know, in Belfast and in Jerusalem and in you know, many cities around the world, there are religious borders in Varanasi, where I lived in India. You know, there's religious borders, there are racial borders, there are socioeconomic borders, cultural borders um, that are invisible. And so I think in a way, understanding militarized physical walls with barbed wire, or security guards, those are one way to think about the ways in which nationalism and politics divides us, but the story doesn't end there. And so that's what I think sort of connects many of the different works that I've done has been sort of interrogating that question of what does it mean to have borders in this world?
Yeah, I would like to to go to the next uh, step then in your in your life and career, and then ultimately you ended up in Stanford where you are now. Um, I think next year you're, you're you will be ready. Or, yes, or no? I graduate in June. Graduate. Okay. So, um, yeah. Any any project that you're working on besides you know having to study and get your grades, uh, <laughs> good grades. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm very lucky that at Stanford, we are very supported in doing our academic work, which includes art history and film studies and studio art, photography, all sorts of things. Um, and then we also, it's a two-year program. In the first year, you make three films in one year, which is a little bit insane and also amazing. <laughs> and then the second year, you develop a longer it's still a short film, but a longer short film for your thesis, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so my thesis film is about my, my grandma, my bubby, mm. which is Yiddish for grandma. And my bubby is 81 years old and she doesn't know how to swim. And it's one of the things on her bucket list to do before she dies is to swim in the ocean. Oh. So my film is about my bubby learning to swim at 81 years old. And then ultimately uh, we're going to take her to the ocean and she's going to swim in the ocean. <laughs> um, so so I'm, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm she, I, it's really a testament to her. She's mm. so brave. She's so strong. She's so cool that she would do this for me. Um, not a lot of grandparents generally would put on a bathing suit for their mm. grandchild's um, film project. But, uh, but my bubby will, and so I'm very lucky. And I also think it's a really fun project. I've worked on a lot of, you know, as I mentioned, like human trafficking and Brexit and political conflicts. I've worked on a lot of sad films and films that were hard to work on because of the emotional labor that it takes to constantly watch footage and talk to people about something that's very difficult. Um, and so I was really excited to have the chance at Stanford to do, try something new. And so I really, especially mm -hmm. after the pandemic, I thought it is time to make a film that is uplifting and heartening and mm -hmm. happy. And I, and I think the film will be all of those things. I also think it will touch on sort of more complex, serious things such as aging and and bodies and the way that we see ourselves and femininity and mortality and all mm. these things. But really the film, in my opinion, is about it never being too late to try something new. Mm. Um, and also about the optimism of getting older and how a lot of films portray an older person looking back and talking about the good old days and mm. sort of what, what once was or what passed in their life. But my grandma, my bubby is incredibly optimistic and she loves every day, every day, every time we, we talk on the phone, she ends it by saying, make it a good day. Um, you know, every day is a blessing. And so in that regard, I think the film is also going to be about a new perspective on an older person that what if you're, what if being 81 is the best year of one's life? What if you look forward to being 82? You know, what if 81 is just young enough to, to start something new? 
So I'm really excited about that project. <laughs> but if I ask you, you know, what is what do you think is is uh, the most important thing that you are learning from making this movie and talking with your more intensively with your uh, grandmother? What is that? Is that optimism or is it something else? Well, I think, as you know, doing interviews, I think the beauty of it is that I don't really know. And it's very unexpected. And I think there's something so special, which, which I'm feeling right now, right? Which is when you ask someone to be interviewed and you sit down and you take the time to consider their thoughts and listen to what they have to say, it really is a gift. I think it's an act of love and an act of kindness and an act of dignity to believe that what someone has to say is worth listening to. And so the other thing that I want to explore with my grandma is just having her know how her life is important and what happened in her life is interesting and is in some ways universal um, and can be interesting to people. And so, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen, but that's mm. what's really fun and kind of spicy about filmmaking is, is you just yeah. sort of take this leap. Really, we, we had an incredible teacher uh, this quarter for our thesis seminar where we developed the ideas for the thesis. Her name is Natalia Almada. She's a prolific filmmaker um, who has also made films about her family and Mexico and technology. I mean, she's absolutely prolific. And, um, and on, the on the first week of, during the first week of class, she took us all paddleboarding. <laughs> Um, and said it was this metaphor for filmmaking, right? Mm. That uh, really sort of going into the water, you can't see the end, you're probably gonna fall off, you don't really know what's gonna happen and you just have to keep swimming. And in a way, it is an incredible metaphor for filmmaking and you know, for interviewing really in any context or making any type of artistic project is you don't know. And that's the incredible thing also about nonfiction in particular is it's unscripted, right? Like I couldn't write better than what my bubby is gonna actually say to me. She's hilarious, she's really blunt, she's very wise, she's a delight to listen to. So in a way that's really exciting to me that I don't know what she's gonna say. <laughs> that's great. I'm looking forward to, to your, um, yeah, to the move. The Thank movie. you. Um, yeah, Asa, um, you know, you know why I, I yeah, explained it to you before we started, why I started this uh, um, podcast. It's a spin-off of my 100-mile walk. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to ask you, if, if you're asked to walk 100 miles in a week, so 15 to 20 miles per day, um, for which cause or why would you walk 100 miles in a week? Mm. That is an amazing question. The first thing that comes to mind is I would walk a hundred miles. I don't know if I could do it in a week. You're very, um, you're very athletic. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would walk a hundred miles and I would want to walk a hundred miles with people 
who stand for peace in Israel and Palestine. Um, I mean, as an American, as an American Jewish person, it absolutely breaks my heart to feel so far away from a peace process in Israel and Palestine and really broadly in the Middle East, um, so far from a peace process that I saw in Northern Ireland. Um, and again, it wasn't perfect and they're not truly analogous situations. Um, but what I think is very beautiful about your endeavor is that walking a hundred miles requires a lot of listening and it requires a lot of time spent with people and something that really matters to me and something that brings me great joy through filmmaking is, is really getting the chance to sit down and listen to people and really getting the chance to consider their lives and the complexities of their lives and the backstory and the context for sort of what brought that person into this room, into this moment. And I think a lot of that is lost. And it's a privilege really to be a filmmaker, to have the chance to do that, to have the chance to do that again and again in different ways and in different contexts. And so, you know, when I talk about political conflicts, that's the one that is close to my heart, it breaks my heart that in the name of, of Jewish people, um, atrocities are committed and oppression is happening on an everyday basis. Um, but it also breaks my heart that people would, people would conflate religion, would, would conflate my religion, my faith with a political system, you know? Um, and I think they're really, the thing about, you know, Jerusalem or the Holy Land more generally is that it is a beautiful place of, it is the birthplace of, you know, three sort of major <laughs> religions in the world, three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And so I hope a lot of people take your hundred mile walks and I would, I would be really interested in taking a hundred mile walk with people of many faiths with many different political views on what's happening in the Middle East. And we could walk and talk. I think that would be great. I, I would like to piggyback on, on religion because very often I do talk about, you know, what drives you and then religion pops up and spirituality. And then we talk about uh, often about the younger generation. And um, that, at least in the West, there seems to be, um, well, some, some co, I call them co-walkers. I don't even know if that's a word, but <laughs> people that walk with me will, will uh, say, oh, you know, the younger generation really experiences this differently, you know, about religion and spirituality. And others say, no, uh, spiritually, they are still the same. It's maybe religion, you know, the institutionalized religion where they are different my question to you is what do you see uh happening among youth in your community that's a great question to me i think everybody has their own spiritual path you know whether you grew up quote unquote religious or without religion 
um, or with spirituality as distinct from religion. And I grew up in what I would say was more of a cultural Jewish home, um, but not a very religious one. And I have extended family who in many ways are, are very observant and quite religious. And so when I was growing up, I would say Judaism to me was food and holidays and not much else. But after I decided to do a bat mitzvah, which is like a, a ceremony in which you read from the Torah and you become an adult, essentially. After I did that, I started to get more interested in the Torah itself and in the teachings and in the scripture. And it, but it wasn't really until I got to college and I met two incredible, very progressive female rabbis um, at Princeton, Rabbi Sarah Rich and Rabbi Julie Roth. And they really opened my eyes to different interpretations of scripture and feminist interpretations and queer interpretations and many different ways of, of seeing the complexity. And of course, there's a lot of things that are really horrifying in the Old Testament, um, but there's a lot that's really beautiful and a lot of questions to be asked. So when, so when you ask about youths, like I do, I don't feel like I can be a spokesperson for um, the Jewish community writ large, but I do think that um, for a lot of us who seek it out, um, the faith, any faith, but for me, you know, Judaism is my faith. Um, it can be so rewarding in a world that is very tumultuous to have things to read and to have questions to ask. And, you know, it's not really about finding answers to me. Um, the Jewish faith is very rooted in questioning and, you know, considering something and being skeptical and that all really resonates with me. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that, that where we go a little bit faster. So, so um, yeah, go for it. You can cut me off too. So. No, no, no. <laughs> um, you know, we, you, you, we talked about, yeah, a lot of things in terms of you know war, peace. Um, yeah, worries about uh, you know borders between countries. Um, what are yeah? What do what does worry you most at the moment in the world? In the United States, what worries me most is political polarization. I think this actually ties to my beliefs about borders and political conflicts, which is that yeah. people assume a lot and listen very little. And I wish we could find more ways to more strongly and more seriously and more empathetically consider one another's lives and contexts and understanding or making more of an effort and an endeavor to understand each other instead of talk past each other. Where do you still see hope? I see hope and I feel hope every time I pick up a camera and a microphone and I get to listen to somebody. I, I, I can relate to that. Um, <laughs> I knew you would relate to that. <laughs> um, yeah, music is very important to me. I really, you know, it's, yeah, it's an important part of my life. So I always ask this question. 
um, if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that for a big part embodies who you are, what you are about, which song or piece of music would it be? It would be the song Stand By Me. Um, I, as a pandemic hobby, learned how to play the ukulele. And that was the first song I learned to play mm -hmm. because it's very easy. Um, but also, I think the message of the song about, you know, when you feel alone or when the night has come, you know, the idea that when things get tough, you should you should offer your support to someone else. That is a profound belief that I hold. So it's a, and it's a great song too. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And I, I, yeah, I really appreciate it that you mentioned it because, you know, what I've, I've tried to say here and is also one of the reasons that I'm trying to do this podcast is, well, this old, you know, what we are experiencing as a world today should have realized that we are all interconnected. But, you know, in many ways, the opposite is happening. Mm. And we are become much more tribal than anything else. And, and uh, yeah, so... Great. And I like the ukulele because that's that's um, what I try to play as well. Um, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> outside of, of the drums, but I started ukulele later. So um, and, and well, the listeners of my podcast have heard my ukulele um, because I used it in between the, the conversations. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I can't wait to hear so it. I, and now I, I admit it that it's me that you hear. Um, OK. <laughs> <laughs> everybody was, what is this? Um, Another question that I have for you, and, and we could do, you know, a whole week podcast about this, but my organization is celebrating 75th anniversary. And so we are kind of reflecting on how, how well did we do? Congratulations. How should we do better? Yeah. I, I, was not, I was not there for all 75 Right. Years, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one big issue and topic that we are looking at is and discussing is racial justice. And, and so my question to you, and because you also worked for an NGO and you know the sector a bit. So um, if I ask you, you know, how do you think the NGO sector did as a whole, which is very difficult because there are so many different types of NGOs, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. How did the NGO sector do around racial justice? What a good question. I mean, I think, you know, because we're in a podcast and no one can see us, I should say that I'm, I'm white. And so my thoughts on racial justice should be secondary to people of color's thoughts on racial justice. Um, you know, I do think it looks different all around the world. And I think in the U S um, the murder of George Floyd was such a horrific thing and it was a turning point for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who had either willfully turned a blind eye or had never had to reckon with or consider the profound racism upon which the United States was founded and continues to operate on a daily basis. And so to your question about how the NGO sector has dealt with it, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that generally, I think what I would say is that racism didn't go away when 
Barack Obama was elected president, you know, racism didn't go away, unfortunately, when George Floyd was murdered, um, even though one would hope that would be a real profound shift in the country. And so, so I would say, um, you know, and this is a, a Martin Luther King quote that's also inextricable to a rabbi's quote, Rabbi uh, Heschel, that, you know, the arc is the arc of justice. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So I have to have hope that we will become a more tolerant, more loving, more kind, more gracious country um, because we have to. Yeah, I, I also feel very passionate about the sustainable development goals, mm. and uh, because it's it the process and the goals are far from perfect, but at least it gives us some markers, you know, in in the things that we need to do to make this world better, to make it more sustainable. Uh, Seventeen goals, you know, goal one is end poverty, goal two is end hunger, uh, goal five is is uh, gender, so yeah, many things that we need to do as a world. If I ask you, um, you know, yeah, uh, Asa, tells what do you want the listeners to know about uh, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals? What is your message there? What do you like them to? Yeah, to you you had a good guess um, that to me they're of course all interconnected, um, but to me when I think about political conflicts and I think about political polarization and I think about racial injustice and all of these issues that we've talked about, a lot of it ties to the oppression of women and girls. Um, because when you oppress any part of the population and when you oppress the people who generally, you know, are caretaking and put in many different difficult economic, financial, political, social situations, it harms everyone. And so I think, you know, the film industry is reckoning with this. Certainly there's um, really unbelievable gender discrimination in the film industry and in politics and in all sorts of fields. But to me, it feels like an obvious one that is hopefully not too controversial um, to just give really to give women more seats at the table in any in any table where decisions are being made I, I would like to ask you the last question and that is you know any last message question or invitation for the listeners what a lovely question. As a filmmaker, and you also have this, uh, this privilege, I think, it is such a privilege to really sit down and listen to somebody else. And it might sound boring and it might sound silly, but I would invite any listener who's listening right now to reach out to someone they love, someone they admire, someone they don't know very well, someone in their family, someone uh, not in their family or in their chosen family um, 
and invite them to be interviewed and ask a few questions and record it or don't record it. There's so many different ways of doing this, but um, I think you will be uplifted. I think you will feel connected. I think you will feel present. And if nothing else, you will feel surprised and delighted. And that is a great thing. So that's my invitation to interview someone for 20 minutes this week. <laughs> Start with 20 and see where it goes. Right. Well, I, I would like to thank you, allowing me to interview uh, you and, and you know the fact that you shared your experience and your wisdom and, and knowledge with me and, and the rest of the listeners. So I would like to wish you also all the best with everything you do and, and really encourage the listeners to check out everything you've done so far and everything you're going to do as well. So keep an eye on, 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 on you uh, because I, yeah, I, I really think, um, yeah, extremely talented and, and a lot of beautiful stuff already made. So uh, yeah, thank you for that. So and, much. Uh, keep on doing this it. was really, really such a joy. Um, thank you. Yeah. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram i just finished the 10th 100 mile walk and i really encourage you to check out our website 100mile.org to see how you can still contribute to this campaign thank you